Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. This past week was bookended for the Jewish community worldwide by two events that took place in Israel among the, ortho- the ultra-Orthodox community, but not exclusively touching them. In fact, rippling out to touch, to touch many more people. So last night, as you have probably heard by now, it's a really sad story. Um, 45 people so far have died and many, many more were injured in a stampede of 100,000 or so people who had all gathered to visit the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai on Mount Meron in the north of Israel, which is a custom that's grown in popularity over the last number of years for people celebrating Lagba Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer, this period of counting between Passover and Shavuot. We've been doing it together. Um, Every night we've been counting. We'll do it again tonight. Last night was the 33rd day of the Omer. And the stories surrounding why Jews celebrate Lagba Omer are specious at best, historically speaking. Um, But obviously that has no bearing on how seriously many Jews take the celebration of the holiday. I wanted to talk a little bit about the holiday. I wanted to talk a little bit about what we might learn about how to be in this world from both the characters and the history of the holiday. So even calling it a holiday is a little, is a little excessive. This non-holiday holiday celebrates um, at least two things, at least two things. One, the abatement of a plague that killed 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva in ancient Roman-occupied Israel who were punished for mistreating one another in their intellectual and halachic debates. Two, Lagba Omer is the yard site of the Talmudic sage Shimon Bar Yochai, the guy whose grave everyone was visiting. And he is credited for authoring the Zohar, which is sort of the central mystical text of Judaism, and transmitting Judaism's mystical lineage, both in his lifetime and beyond the grave. So for the first 30 days of the Omer, I mean, really for the first 32 days of the Omer, we're in something of a mourning period, like um, like Shloshim, after somebody dies. Um, you know, not listening to live music, a lot of people not getting haircuts. Um, many people don't get married during that period of time. It's it's a mourning period. Whether you're thinking about it as for Shimon Bar Yochai or for the students of Rabbi Akiva. But then Lagba Omer is this day, this clearing of joy and campfires and song and dance, which makes it that much more tragic to have this joyful celebration end yesterday with such chaos and pain and tragedy among our people. And I say our people that, you know, they don't uh, dress like any any men in my life, in my immediate orbit, but they're, you know, they're, they're my people. Um, and, and it's, then it's a tragedy. So that's this week's bookend. Last week at this time, 
we were seeing pictures and receiving reports of another disturbing series of events, also in Israel, in Jerusalem, as hundreds of far right-wing nationalists, you could say Jewish supremacists, from a group called Lehava, marched through the streets of Jerusalem, shouting, death to Arabs, right? Jerusalem, a city that is populated, that is shared by Jews and Arabs, shouting death to Arabs. And in the violence that ensued, over 100 Palestinians were injured, many were hospitalized, a few dozen Israeli police and also Israeli civilians also injured. And it seems clear from the reports last week that the hundreds of Jews shouting death to Arabs as they marched down the street was part of a larger hostile climate uh, in a sort of tit-for-tat thing that was happening with lots of individual acts of violence happening around the city, Jews and Palestinians, both most of which was being stoked by social media. But none of this was really widely reported. But for any of us concerned with the welfare and goings-on of the Jewish community worldwide, it is important for us to take note of violent Jewish supremacists. They're not just marching through the streets, terrorizing and intimidating Arabs. They are also claiming seats in the Knesset. They, they went up in the number of seats in the recent election and are enjoying a resurgent, resurgence in much the same way as right-wing nationalists and groups and leaders and rhetoric all over the world. Except these guys belong to us as much as I hate to say that, right? These guys are spewing their supremacist hatred in your name for your sake and mine, even though I have not asked for it. And if that bothers you, I would love to talk with you about what you'd like to do about that, how you'd like to translate your frustration or indignation into action. If those were the bookends of the week, the week was also punctuated in the middle with this tragic story of a French Jewish woman, Sarah Halimi, who was 65, who in 2017 was beaten and killed by her neighbor, who it seems like it was a hate crime. He yelled Allahu Akbar as he pushed her out of the window to her death. And uh, we learned this week that he wouldn't be facing criminal charges. And there were marches in the streets of Paris calling for justice for Sarah against a backdrop and climate of anti-Semitic violence all over the world. Not to mention an uptick in violence against minority groups in general all over the world. None of these stories happened remotely close to where I live. And yet, because of my connection to the Jewish story, because this is my larger family, I'm, I'm awake to these stories, I read them differently, I'm disturbed and I'm agitated in a way that I, I can't be disturbed and agitated um, with every story of injustice and suffering in the world. I'm not a prophet. You know, each of us has a tolerance for how much of the world's pain we can take on, you know, on top of our own day-to-day -day struggles and lives. And so with that limited capacity, you can understand the instinct to pay closer attention to what's happening with the folks who share the same stories, the same Torah, the same holidays, claim the same identity wherever they live.
This has been a hard week for Jews the world over on a physical level and I will say on a moral level. I'm tired and I imagine you are too. So as Jews, the way that we make sense of our struggles in light of, is in light of previous struggles. <laughs> um, the author, Jonathan Safran Four says that when a Jew pricks their finger, they remember, not they feel not just the pain of this prick, but they remember every other needle and every other prick of the finger they ever had. You know, the sewing needle, the pin that their grandmother stuck them with as a child, you know, it evokes all of the, all of the traumas and all of the memories and all of the stories of everything similar. And we root ourselves in those shared stories. We try to figure out what we do. So I wanted to look a little bit at this holiday, this quasi holiday that we're coming off of the heels of, Lagba Omer. So it finds its roots in the lives of two different rabbis, as I said, two different stories, Rabbi Akiva students and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. <clears throat> and these two rabbis had two very different orientations toward taking on the issues of the day facing the Jewish people. And I'm a little, I have to tell you, I'm a little worried that I might be overloading us with history here in a moment, but, you know, we're just going to find out. <clears throat> so Rabbi Akiva, let's go, let, let's look at Rabbi Akiva. He was considered the greatest Jewish sage of all time. He is considered the greatest Jewish sage of all time. Um, you may have heard a midrash where Moses goes up on Sinai to receive Torah and he's waiting there and it's been days, you know, 40 days. And he's saying, God, what's taking so long? And God says to Moses, Moses, in the future, there will be a guy who interprets every little flourish and, you know, calligraphy crown on every letter in the Torah. And Moses says, really? Really? Somebody who's more brilliant than I am? Show me this person. And God puts Moses in a time machine or, you know, disapparates Moses and, and makes him reappear in Rabbi Akiva's Beit Midrash a thousand years later. And Moses learns for a while and understands. This Rabbi Akiva was an out-and-out out political activist. So in the face of increasing restrictions and violence inflicted on Jews and Jewish institutions around the turn of the millennium in Israel, as the Romans were in charge, Rabbi Akiva cast his hopes on a freedom fighter, Shimon Bar Koziva, or Bar Kochva, meaning the son of the star. And though the Romans had destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in the year CE, right, that's what we that's what we commemorate when we come together on Tisha B'Av, there was still a group of Jews fighting for sovereignty led by Shimon Bar Kochva. Rabbi Akiva thought he was the Messiah and encouraged all of his followers to follow him too. And in the year 136 CE, the Bar Kochva revolt was decisively put down by the Romans. This is actually all history. This is not specious history. This is, this is real history. According to the Roman historian Cassius Dio, 580,000 Jews died in that war. Actually, uh, many more than died in the first Roman Jewish war. 
and many more died thereafter of hunger and disease. And in addition, many Judean captives were sold into slavery and almost a thousand villages were destroyed in what some scholars actually describe as a genocide. The Romans renamed the land from Judea to Syria, Palestina. Rabbi Akiva was burned at the stake. And the Talmud records him as saying to his students as he is being burned, I never understood what it meant to love God with all your soul until this moment. It means even if God takes your soul, his students say, are you kidding teacher? Even in this moment, like you will still be professing, you know, God's greatness, even in this moment. And, and he says, I have waited all my life to fulfill, to truly fulfill this mitzvah. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And he holds that last Echad until his breath leaves his body. This guy died fighting for a cause, a just cause, and ultimately losing cause. And his support for that cause, you could say, led half a million Jews to their deaths. And he died a martyr. Rabbi Kiva. Not so Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was actually a student of Rabbi Akiva, who did not die in this plague. He was confronted with the possibility of the Romans taking him too to task for his statements against them. And so he took his son and he hid, he hid in a cave for 12 years. And when he comes out, he looks around and he sees a farmer. And as far as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who has been studying Torah in the cave for 12 years, as far as he is concerned, this farmer is a heathen who is engaged in the pursuits of this world instead of higher pursuits, more lofty intellectual, spiritual pursuits. And he manages to set everything he looks at on fire with his laser beam eyes, you know, that just whatever he looks at, he disapproves of and poof. He sets it on fire. And so a bat kol, a gentle yet stern voice emanates from the heavens and says, I didn't let you out of that cave to destroy my world. Get back in there. Right? The righteous indignation that he had, you know, on behalf of, on behalf of all that is right. Get back in your cave until you've really learned how to be in the world. And so when he finally emerges, he is softened. And he purifies the land of Tiberias. He plants trees. He moves to the north. He creates a yeshiva in Tekoa. And once the heat of the Romans has died down, he actually is able to act as an emissary advocating for Jewish existence and safety in the land, even as he continued to hate the Romans' guts, which you can read all about in the Mishnah and Talmud. And the guy who retreated to the cave in the midst of the fight, ends up after the dust settles, being the community's champion and hero. The reason why we actually have any tradition of Jewish literature is because his student, Yehuda Hanasi, learned from him the importance of writing everything down so that it could be transmitted. So who has the better strategy? for speaking truth to power, for advocating for the right things, for advocating for justice in an unjust world, for freedom when people are restricted and oppressed.
Shimon Bar Yochai stayed true to his principles. He built his inner reserves of Torah knowledge and spiritual power. He also hid in a cave while his friends and teachers were on the front lines and had to live with that. Rabbi Akiva raised a generation of talented students, yet somehow his passion for justice didn't translate into teaching them how to treat one another with kindness and dignity. Remember why the first month of the Omer is considered a mourning period, right? Akiva, the great supporter of liberation and justice, raised a generation of students whose infighting destroyed 24,000 of them, also weakening their cause right, with petty and mean internal disputes. His dream wasn't fulfilled in his lifetime. Oh, it was eventually fulfilled. It actually was eventually fulfilled. And then 2000 years later, the story of what happened to Arabs in the land of Israel in the fulfillment of Rabbi Akiva's dream is quite the same story that we heard about what happened to the Jews 2000 years earlier in the very same place. The idea of, you know, the, the question, which one has the right, it's obviously a, a false dichotomy, but which character in the story do you resonate with? Do you imagine yourself to be, or do you admire? Why? What should be our strategy for moving forward as Jews in a world marked by violence perpetrated towards us and also by us? So Rabbi Zohar Atkins is a modern philosopher and rabbi. And he writes this week, looking at Parshat Imur and thinking about Lagba Omer this holiday. He says the perennial challenge is to find the balance between Moses, the prophet, and Aaron, the priest, between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, between leader and mystic, lawgiver, and dropout, prose and poetry. From the combination of Rabbi Akiva and Shimon Bar Yochai, both flawed heroes, we learn that a person can be wise and politically mistaken, wise and ethically challenged, wise and psychologically limited. The ability to read Torah creatively and to discover the supernal mysteries is a great but insufficient aspiration when confronted with the complexities of the world. Or as Hannah Arendt puts it, politics concerns those questions for which answers don't exist. I think about all of those Jews yesterday, pilgrims at the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai their purity of devotion, their sense of connection to this historic leader who left a legacy of study and learning and mystical consciousness and ultimately diplomacy at the end of the day. I'm sorry for their losses. And you know, many of them don't still know who among their loved ones will be okay. I often think, I think about how often Jewish tradition cites the words of Rabbi Akiva. First and foremost, he is credited with the idea that the entire purpose of Torah 
is to teach one principle. The entire purpose of Torah, the klal gadol v'torah, is ve'ahavta l'reyecha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. I pray, I pray for us that our devotion to our highest principles can be paired with basic human dignity for those we disagree with and might even despise, that we practice and preach and model the kind of care for the other that we wish to God, that we hope and pray that others would practice and preach and live. I pray for us to have vision of the world as it could be, paired with the strategy that allows us not to just claim the right to, but, but to be able to see the fruits of it grow in our lifetimes. I pray for others not to be hurt by our need to be safe. I pray for us to be able to make bonfires and to sing and to celebrate with our tribes, our actual and our chosen family, but not to stop there, to share that fire out in concentric circles until the whole world is glowing and warm with that love. You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work. And you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at Mishkan Chicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heideman and Dina Cowens, and our director of communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan... Thanks for tuning in.